thank you for joining us here at Pennington AG Church. I am excited to continue our series through the Old Testament prophetic writing of Amos. Before we dive into the word this morning, I also want to, as a church, as a community, address some of the global issues and give us an opportunity to pray as well. Last Saturday, uh, a week and one day ago, there was a terrorist attack on the nation of Israel by the organization of Hamas. In that incident, 1,200 innocent people lost their lives. Many were victimized. The vulnerable were taken advantage of. And we want to respond in prayer for those people who have been victimized and hurt. We also want to pray for all of our Jewish friends that are able to be victims of anti-Semitism that is stoked sometimes when these incidents happen. We want to additionally pray over the last week that this has inflamed the conflicts that have raged there for 80 years or thousands of years, however you track, and for the additional thousands of lives of innocent Palestinians that have also been lost as the war now ignites and continues to rage on. We want to pray because the vulnerable need to be protected and are important to our Heavenly Father. We want to pray because any image bearer of our Creator that is lost is a tragedy. And we want to pray for peace in Israel and in Palestine. Finally, as we pray, I want to encourage us as a church body that we do not live in fear. And that as we look at an incident happening in the region of Israel, that this is not a time, as Christ warns us, to try to look for signs of when He's coming and what is happening, but we stand on what Jesus says, that we are always prepared for what Christ is doing, and we do the work diligently. If you join with me in prayer this morning, Lord, we pray over our world As we live through wars and rumors of wars, this is not the first time. This is the story of humanity's brokenness. Lord, and we pray for your intervention and peace. We pray over the nation of Israel. We pray over those lives that have been lost. Lord, that you are there bringing comfort and peace. We pray over the region of Palestine and many of them Christian Palestinians losing life caught in the crosshairs. Lord, we pray for your protection and power. And God, we pray for peace. Lord, we know that it may feel for many of us futile to pray over this region again, but Lord, we trust that you are a God of miracles and you are a God of order and not chaos. You are a God of life and not death. And Lord, we pray that your hand is there. We pray over all of our brothers and sisters that we are grafted into their story of the Jewish people around the world, Lord. May you protect them, may you be near to them, and may you continually be leading them to the salvation that comes through your Son. And Lord, we pray for all of us that call on your name. May we not be in fear, trying to look for signs and calculate when, but we trust that you are in control. As Danny prayed, you are at the right hand of the Father. And we stand in your presence and your power. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you've been with us through the series of Amos, one of the questions we've asked multiple times is, what is he so mad about? We are into our fourth week of looking at this. And last week, uh, Maddie, or Miss Maddie as Patrick called her, it's also his wife, um, is brought, last week brought us a word about uh, our own possessions and not being defined by our stuff. 
I want to give you two applications, and one of them has already been mentioned. As we continue in this series, we want to be resourcing you with ways to practice what Amos is challenging us. And one, when we talk about living with less, the practice of the tithe that has been mentioned is a discipline of living on less and trusting God to provide. As we pray about that, there's a second practice the church has practiced for thousands of years, and that is the Sabbath. If you don't keep a Sabbath time once a week where you intentionally set aside and trust that the world will continue moving if you are not at work in every piece of it and enjoy the goodness and the presence of God, I encourage you to practice those in our efforts of trusting God with our stuff. This morning, what is Amos mad about this time? We are going to talk about our communal responsibility. Another shorthand for this sermon is... Am I alone? Am I alone? Am I alone in my journey? Am I alone in my suffering? Am I alone in my questions and doubts? But at the same time, am I alone in that I don't have any responsibility for the people around me? The old axiom that I can go further faster, I mean, I can go faster alone, but I can go further together. What is our responsibility and connection to each other? When thinking about this, I think about a classic biblical character by the name of Ron Swanson. Throw that up there. Ron Swanson, not from the Bible, from Parks and Rec. Uh, one of my favorite shows. I have watched through this show probably about a dozen times at this point, and I can quote almost every line of the series. Ron Swanson, you can see this rugged, good-looking man behind me, mustachioed, is probably one of the best iconic TV characters of the last 15 years. And one thing that you know about Ron Swanson, if you've watched the show at all, is that Ron is a classic, rugged individualist. He proclaims multiple times and teaches others about the principles of libertarianism, that everyone should just do their own thing. He is a man who can build his own cabin out of logs with his bare hands. He is a man who can whittle his own canoe and then sail across the lake on it. He is a man who at 12 years old was working in a steel mill and a leather factory. He is a man who can do it all on his own. He is also a man that as you watch this fictional story of his life, you see from season one to season six a progress of a man who doesn't need anybody, isn't connected to anybody, lives on his own, has three cabins out in the woods that the government doesn't even know about, into a man who desperately needs, loves, and values the community placed around him, who loves the people he works with and walks them down the aisle at their weddings and is open to join into a marriage with a woman who already has two kids and to walk in that journey together. And you see him grow to understand that the posture he placed as needing no one and being self-sufficient was always to him a lie. He always needed the people around him. He always was a part of something bigger than himself. As we look at Amos today, we are looking at his challenge to the people of Israel as he challenges them about how they treat the vulnerable, as he challenges them about how they treat themselves and how they use their resources, one of the main themes of this prophetic work is that you are responsible for and to the community around you. We are not just individuals. We'll look at one of the earliest passages, Amos chapter 1, verse 6. The prophet writes this. I'll be reading in the New Living Translation. There are Bibles under half of your chairs. You can follow along 
with your apps or on the screen. Amos 1.6, this is what the Lord says, the people of Gaza have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They sent whole villages into exile, selling them as slaves to Edom. What the heck? What is that? When you read Old Testament prophets, sometimes it's difficult to get the context of what's happening. Who's Gaza in this? Don't let it get confused with the modern nation states and problems we're living through. When he is talking about Gaza, he's talking about a region of Israel. He's talking about the people of his own cousins and nations that he's prophesying to. The situation, we don't really know. But scholars can point to other biblical texts that show us a pattern of things Israel did, which is most likely what Amos is talking about. Throughout the prophetic letter, there are examples of Israelites doing evil, not just against other nations, but against each other, their own people, neighbors, family. The wealthy are charging rent that tenants cannot afford, and when they cannot afford it, they are taking them to court. When they go to court, They are financially paying off the judicial system that is not giving fair hearing and representation to those who have been kicked out of their homes. When they are now kicked out of their homes, the only way to pay their debt is to now become the property of their landlords themselves and they're sold into slavery. All of these actions violate Israelite Pentateuch law. Moses writes to the people in Deuteronomy about fair wages and not overcharging in rent and interest. In Deuteronomy, again, Moses writes about legal representation and fair judges that judge over the people. And Deuteronomy and Leviticus themselves speak a lot about selling others into slavery. Amos chapter 1 verse 6 may be referring to an incident like this. What we know is that in 2 Chronicles 28, 13, there is a moment where the southern neighbors of Israel, Judah, at this point the two nations are split, but they're kind of like cousins. Judah is being attacked by the Assyrians, this nation that eventually takes all of Israel. They're attacking the southern nation of Judah, and a few tribes are victimized. They leave their homes. They're fleeing from persecution. They are fleeing from violence. They are vulnerable and in need. They come to their neighbors in the north, and they ask for help. They ask for salvation. They ask for sanctity to take us in. And instead, what they do is this in 2 Chronicles 28, 13. You must not bring the prisoners here, they declared, We cannot afford to add to our sins and guilt. Our guilt is already great, and the Lord's fierce anger is already turned against Israel. We can't help you. Your sin and problems are not our sin and problems. We have enough problems of our own. Deal with it yourself, not ours to bear. I am not my brother's keeper. And as the passage goes on, what they do is they take these vulnerable people and they sell them into slavery into the nation of Edom. Not only do they not help their neighbors, but they profit off their own vulnerability and misery. You maybe could guess a little bit why Amos is angry. You can guess why God has empowered him to challenge his people. Now, when you read a book like Amos, you can ask the question of, 
All right, who is responsible? Amos is writing this letter to the whole nation, right? But the whole nation didn't sell their neighbors into slavery. That's just a few people did that. It's a few bad actors. It's a few bad apples. Not everybody did that. Did all of Israel, every single person, get together and vote to enslave these people? Was it a ballot on the initiative and everybody said 100%, yes, enslave them? No, definitely not. Is every person in Israel a slumlord, charging exorbitant rent and exploiting the vulnerable? No. Is every person a corrupt prosecutor denying representation to the poor? No. And yet, Amos writes a letter to the whole of Israel, not to specific people, not to specific bad actors. Imagine being a bread maker in Israel and this letter is being circulated from Amos, or you're in the marketplace and you hear this man talking about what's going to happen to your nation, calling it out, and you say, I, I didn't do that. I'm a bread maker. I just make bread. Like, everybody loves it. No one's gotten against carbs yet. This is, I do a good thing. I'm not a part of that. You have a local farmer who hears about Amos saying this, and maybe he had heard about these incidents in the nation and heard about what's happening. He goes, I'm a farmer. I don't do that. I want you to know, formally, I am against it. On my Israelite Facebook page, I posted, I am against it. So, like, people know I'm not a part of that. And two generations later, when the Assyrian army came into the nation of Israel and took them into slavery, did they ask, who actually were the guilty parties? Do you think the bread maker and the farmer got to say, no, 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 I was against it, and they said, oh, okay, you're one of the good ones. There is a biblical principle that we are responsible for the sins of our community. We are accountable for each other's wrongdoing. And that may not seem fair, but let's examine. Daniel chapter 9, verse 5 another Old Testament prophet. Now, Daniel, little-known fact, is one of the only Old Testament characters and one of the only figures in the entire Bible outside of Jesus who never sins. There's not a recorded wrongdoing of Daniel. He doesn't do anything wrong the whole time. Daniel is awesome. He always does the right thing, always shows up, says the right thing, does the right thing, always comes through. Daniel is actually, by some scholars, called a proto-messianic figure. He's kind of like Jesus, but not Jesus. He's that perfect. Yet, in Daniel chapter 9, there's an extended chapter of Daniel repenting of sin. What's going on here? Let's look at Daniel 9.5. But we have sinned and done wrong. This is Daniel talking. We have sinned and done wrong. We have rebelled against you and scorned your commands and regulations. Now, Daniel has done nothing wrong. The sins he's repenting of, he wasn't even alive for. This is two generations earlier. He had nothing to do with any of this. And yet he takes it on to his own heart and shoulders and spirit and owns it as if it is his own. I'll challenge you. If someone comes into the church and has a bad experience with a small group that you are not in, or somebody has a meeting with me that you don't know about, and we say something wrong, or we do something hurtful, 
and you're going around and telling people that you go to Pennington AG Church and someone who's heard about this incident knows it, do you think they're going to differentiate you as one of the good Pennington AG Church people? You're going to be able to say at the grocery store, like, no, no, I was not in that small group. We are held accountable for one another. We live and we die as a community. We are a part of this as one. Another way of reading Daniel, chapter 9, verse 5, this is the Brian Lane translation. I am not responsible for the sins of my past, but I am responsible to end cycles of sin and brokenness that they have caused that have continued into my generation. Some of you in the room may be your own rugged individualists. Maybe you've thought of growing a mustache yourself. Good for you. And it's very tempting to say, I take care of myself and you take care of yourself. You may hear this language used in modern America. That was in the past. That's done and over with. Let's focus on now. Or you may hear the refrain, well, that was a few bad actors that we need to take care of. The whole system is certainly not broken or corrupt. But corruption in the community brings judgment in the same way that gracious mercy in the community brings forgiveness and reconciliation. And you know how I know that we know this? Because Christ Jesus is one man whose actions and work impact us 2,000 years later and 8 billion people later. One man's actions bring freedom and forgiveness and mercy into a community. Or as Paul says it in Romans 5.18, yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. One man's sin brought condemnation for everyone. We are now all responsible but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. One person everyone is accountable for. One person everyone is set free from. That is the message and gospel of salvation. That is the theology of Christianity. That is what we believe and what defines us. And yet we turn around and we say, that other person's sin is not my responsibility. The actions of my community? No, not mine. What the gospel and what Scripture makes clear is we are accountable for the sins of one another. Why do we struggle with the biblical truth that the sins of individuals in one community may build systems that perpetuate sins in communities and that we as individuals need to come back together to create systems and communities that heal the brokenness in our world. That is a biblical principle. And I'll say this clear. The sins of our community may not be our fault, but it is our responsibility now to see that they end and are healed and are reconciled. No one is asking me to bear the guilt of another, but God says you are responsible to end its cycle now. How do we do that? 
We are accountable for our community. We are accountable to our community. We're accountable to one another. That's what Amos is saying. You may not have done that, but you didn't start a movement. You heard about it. You did nothing. You let it go on. Call each other out. Speak into each other's lives. Tell them that that is unacceptable. Go and set them free. Amos 5, 14 and 15 say, Do what is good and run from evil so that you may live. Hate evil and love what is good. Turn your courts into true halls of justice. Perhaps even yet the Lord God of heaven's armies will have mercy. The role of a prophet was a truth teller. Whether you liked it or not, they were going to tell you how God spoke it to them. And they were going to tell you how it is. Surprise, they never really liked it. We have 12 recorded acts of people called to speak truth to their community. Did not go well for them, made their lives hard, but that they were accountable to each other and that the community was accountable to them. Speak truth to our people. Amos begins with a charge. He spends three chapters after this little passage we read in Amos 1, three chapters talking about the sins of other nations. Yeah, the Edomites, they did this and they're going to be destroyed. The Philistines did this and they're going to be destroyed. The Assyrians. And if you're an Israelite, you're hearing the list and you're like, ah, uh, yeah, preach it, brother. Yep, you're right. They are terrible. Ooh, it's going to get destroyed. Perfect. I love it. Bring all of it. Judgment, great. God is a just God and they've been unjust. That's awesome. Take them all down. And then he flips the script on them and he says, I tell you all of this because you should be better than the rest of them and you are exactly the same. So what do you think is going to happen to you? You've spent a lot of time pointing your fingers outside. Maybe we should be pointing our fingers at ourselves and asking ourselves if we're living in line with what God has made us to do and be. Beautiful story, 1972, called the Lucan Conference. If you're not really a, a study of these things, you probably don't know what the Lucan Conference was. Um, but can anybody recognize either of these two men? You, you shout it out if you recognize them. Yeah, Billy Graham, right? Billy Graham is on the left. Guy on the right, harder. His name is John Stott, one of the foremost leaders and theologians of the 20th century from the Anglican movement in England. 1972, evangelicalism, a movement of Christians that stand on the authority of Scripture, a movement of Christians that believe the gospel should be preached missionally and evangelistically to others, uh, gospel people who believe that it should be sanctified in our lives and we should be working towards sanctification. There's a few things that connect us. And they said, hey, let's globally get together and ask what it means to be an evangelical Christian across the whole planet. We have the opportunity to do that now. We can fly. The, the evangelical church has spread all over. Amazing movement. If you follow any of these names, there are massive heavy hitters in evangelicalism in the room. You have Billy Graham. You have John Stott. You have Corey Ten Boom. You have Francis Schaeffer. All there in these committees working together. What does it mean to be evangelicals now in the globe? While the meeting's going on, enter in the president and vice president of Latin American 
inner varsity. Shout out to all my inner varsity peeps in the room. They enter into the meeting and they say, if you want to talk about global Christianity and global evangelicalism, we need to talk about what has happened to our people, our nations, and our regions. And we need to speak about what has happened in Latin America and what has happened in Africa and what has happened in the South Pacific, where people from your people groups have for centuries victimized, exploited, and taken advantage of our people. And that needs to be included in the doctrine of evangelicalism. What does it mean that we reconcile that? What does it mean that we're accountable to that? And what did Billy Graham and John Stott do? I mean, Billy Graham could be like, I am the only person in the room that 50 years from now a community in Pennington is going to recognize. So I think that I get the ultimate say here, and I think we're going to just chill out a little bit. John Stott in his British stoicism could be like, let's all just calm down a little bit. We don't need to get so Latin fiery. They could have just squashed it, moved on with the movement. Instead, they listened and they responded to the cries of their larger community. They let a part of the Christian community with less influence and less power speak truth to them, and they listened and responded and grew. They repented, and they said, you're absolutely right. We need to write this in to who we are, and they wrote in a whole section of the Lucan Covenant called Christian Social Responsibility, and it reads like this. The message of salvation implies also a message of judgment upon every form of alienation, oppression, and discrimination, and we should not be afraid to denounce evil and injustice wherever they exist. Because the community itself allowed members of its own to challenge them when they're wrong and listened and repented and responded. We can go back further to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes a letter to a church in Corinth. Chapter 5, he addresses an issue where a young man is sleeping with his stepmother. First off, ew. Secondly, he says, that, what, you can't do that. That this guy should be thrown out. He should be held accountable. That is wrong to do. I don't know what's happening with the mother-in-law. Maybe he's victimizing her. I don't really know, but this is inappropriate and wrong. And he doesn't say to the community, hey, guys, you're all doing great. Weird pervert guy. Just get rid of him. You're all good. No, what he says is, why have you allowed this? None of you have spoken into his life? He doesn't have a single accountability partner in the church? He's still serving. He's in the nursery. Why is he there? No member of the community felt like it was their responsibility to speak truth into the life of a struggling brother. And Paul doesn't say, well, I'm just going to address a couple of you. He says, no church in Corinth. This letter is for all of you. You were all held accountable. Oh, I wrote down here the saying, you better get your boy. That's just, I should have said that earlier. Jesus was a friend of sinners. This is what they say about him. This is what we say. And for a lot of us younger generation, we love this version of Jesus, right? Jesus, friend of sinners, meals with tax collectors, prostitutes, terrorists, and sinners, 
He's friends with all of them. He eats with all of them. Jesus is so loving and so gracious, full stop. And what we ignore is that Jesus repeatedly in the Gospels has a pattern of calling out the sins of his friends. He speaks to Peter, one of his closest friends. He says, you are acting on behalf of Satan right now. He says to two of his other closest friends, the sons of thunder, what you are asking is out of pride, and you have no idea what you're asking, and you are totally out of line in this moment. He speaks to his disciples when they want to defend him, when his life is on the line. They say, let's all go get our swords. He goes, enough about swords. Shut up about it. Let's move on. Jesus repeatedly spoke truth and correction to the community he was in. We live in an era where we are, I'm going to be honest with you, and I'm not going to cite any data or statistics to back up this statement I'm about to say because it's going to be blatantly obvious to any of you. We are living in a world where it is easy to be less and less accountable to one another. We just are. We're not accountable to each other. We go to church. If anyone says something to us that we don't like, if Pastor Brian preaches something we don't like, I can just go home and I can watch my favorite TikTok theologian. I can go on and go into YouTube and watch my favorite preacher there. I can go and turn on my TV and see on TBN my favorite preacher there who's going to affirm the version of the Bible that I like. And I'm going to say, you know what? I know Pastor Brian and the elders in the community are on about this Amos thing, but this guy says they're wrong. They're wrong. I'm going to do my own thing. Or we live in our small group, and someone in our small group has the audacity to challenge us on a decision we made in our life. Maybe lovingly, hopefully lovingly. Hey, I'm not sure you should be living with your girlfriend at this point until you're married. Or, hey, I think the drinking has maybe become a bit too much of a priority for you. Or, hey, I've seen your social media. I just think this, the tone of anger is, is, is maybe a bit too much. And what do we now have the freedom to do? Let's go to another church. I can just drive to another church. No big deal. I'll go there. How dare they speak to me like that? And I'm just going to move on to the other one. It has made it near impossible for us as a community to together iron sharpen iron, to tarry together, to grow, to struggle, to learn to love in difficult circumstances, and to have to show grace and mercy when we don't agree. Because we are not bound to each other. We are not accountable to each other. Tom Holland, in his groundbreaking work on Western society called Dominion, writes this, The result of the individualism of the Enlightenment has been the decline of all human communities, institutions, neighborhoods, and families, leading to greater isolation, loneliness, anime, anxiety, and depression. Our friend Tim Keller says it like this, Western society in general and U.S. society in particular, are polarized, fragmented, and ungovernable as everyone adopts their own meaning in life and moral value. I decide for myself how the world works. I decide for myself what community is. 
And we say it. You know, I get together a few times at the bar with my friends, and that's my community. That's my spiritual accountability. I don't, that's my church. We do that. And um, that's not me being flippant. I've literally heard that explained multiple times, actually. What does it mean that we say in a church community brought together by the blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who grafted us into an eternal work of salvation and redemption, who calls us a family now by his identity and blood, what does it look like to say, I am committed to you, and you are committed to me, and I give you permission to speak into my life? I want you to ask me hard questions. I want you to tell me when I am off, and I want you to speak truth to me, and I will promise you that I will do the same to you. What does it mean to be held accountable to the community that Christ has brought us in? How different will that make us in this modern era? Finally, this isn't all about the difficulty and pain of community. We are supported by our community. I remember um, when I went to college, I went to Rutgers University, and uh, I lived with a lot of non-Christians, and I was studying religion, and they would ask me, like, why are you studying that? Uh, and I'd be like, I have no idea. Now, I would be like, they would ask me that, and then they would say, usually a follow-up of, you know what, I did the church thing. They're just a bunch of hypocrites. They're just speaking out of line, they're homophobic, that they're anti-women, they're stuck in the past, churches are judgmental. And I remember at 19 years old, entering into university, when I thought back to my church experience, that was the first time anyone had ever dished dirt on, to me about the church. I literally grew up in an environment, and I look back and sure, there were lots of problems and hurts. But my memory was of a community that loved me and that I had men and women who I was not related to that called me brother and treated me like a son and prayed for me and loved me. And I remember I played bass on the worship team. I did it just last week. And some of you were like, wow, that's something he can do. And I played bass as a young man. And when I went to college, I distinctly remember the worship team brought me forward, me and my friend who played drums, and they prayed over us. They're like, hey, they're leaving for college in two weeks. We just want to pray over them and send them out that the Lord's blessing was on them. And I remember thinking as a freshman in college that I took for granted that I had such a community, a family that Christ brought together for me. And it wasn't just that I had a tight-knit family who were loving and caring, and I do, but that I had this other family because people are always like, oh, you must be Italian because you talk with your hand and you're obsessed with pizza. And I'm like, I'm not Italian at all. Every member of my spiritual family is. It shaped me and made me. I think there is a part of all of us, myself included, and maybe myself most of all, that need to examine and repent of the culture of church we create. Is this a family or do we just say that because it's a nice buzzword? Do we value community, or does Patrick feel like he has to say that because that's his job? What does it look like to do that? 
What does it cost us to commit to each other? And what is the beautiful benefit of having a larger, diverse, multi-ethnic, multi-generational community of spiritual family that we can lean on? As Paul says in Romans chapter 12, be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. We are called to celebrate with each other. We are called to mourn with each other. I think of 2 Timothy chapter 4. As Paul writes late in his life, he's an old man. He's in prison. He's probably going to die there. He's the most powerful apostle that's been influential over the last 30 years. He's written, planted, done all this stuff. And he writes the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, this vulnerable little sentence. He says, Timothy... Please come as soon as you can. And when you come, be sure to bring the coat I left with Carpus at Troas. Also bring my books and especially my papers. This titan of Christian theology to just think of him as a vulnerable old man who's alone and writing to a young man in the church that he sees as a son. He's saying, can you bring me a coat? Can you bring me my favorite books? I'm lonely. Do we see each other in a multi-generational church where the elders of our community in the most lonely times of their life can find fellowship and community and joy in the worship and energy of the younger generation and that the younger generation with passion and energy, but I'm going to be honest with y'all, having not a clue about a lot of things of how to be done, I'm 37 and I feel like I'm almost maybe figuring it out in about 10 years. I'll let you know when I get there, but that we can lean on the wisdom of those who have gone before us us. You don't have a great father? I'm sorry. But your great heavenly father has provided you in a community with those who can come alongside of you. You're very lonely in this season. I hear you. I feel that. Being a pastor can be very lonely. But he has placed a community around us to let us know not just that we are never alone because the Holy Spirit is with us, but that we are never alone because the community is with us. And I'll tell you this as we close. The Holy Spirit can speak to you individually. He can, He does. I'm going to be honest with you. Biblically, that's the exception. The Holy Spirit moves and works in community. The Holy Spirit lives here in this, in this family, in this room, in this community. The Holy Spirit, as Augustine says, is the relational activity of the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is relational by definition. So the Holy Spirit in our church is relational among us, and He lives not in us individually, but He lives in us communally when we share our lives with each other. And lastly, I'll close with this encouragement from Jesus. Jesus says, I pray that you all would be one, just as He and the Father are one. As the Father is in Him and He is in the Father, He prays that we would be in them so that the world would believe that He sent us. And that perhaps the greatest testimony of Jesus' activity and work in our lives, the greatest testimony that you are a saved person 
is what the love and mercy of your church community looks like. And I'll tell you, and I'll own it myself, the last three years, we are failing at it. Straight up, I'll own it. We are not good at it. And I think Amos would say to us, get working at it. If you don't have someone in the church body that you can lean on or that can speak into your life, I challenge you to be about that work. Begin this week. Start praying. God, who can be an accountability partner to me? Who can speak into my life? If you are not in a small group, I'm going to tell you right now, this is not the church Paul was thinking of when he writes his letters. Our small groups are the churches Paul was thinking about in homes, 10 to 12 people wrestling it out. If you haven't got into a small group yet, I will tell you right now, it's probably because you're sort of scared of the accountability of it and scared of the vulnerability of it. I don't know if I want every week to be locked up by this. I don't know if I really know these people yet. That is the point of it. QR code, back of the chair, lobby, sign up, get involved, share your life with others that Christ has given you. Lean on them and invite them to lean on you. If you join with me in prayer this morning, with every head bowed and eyes closed, I want to give an invitation. If you are in the room this morning, and you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you don't know him, I want to give you a chance to know him, to say a first prayer of inviting him into relationship. And I will tell you, scriptures say that when we confess our need for him and when we open up our heart to believe he is who he says he is, we will be saved. The process begins. You can pray this prayer with me. If you are a follower of Jesus, use this as a recommittal moment Jesus, I believe in you. I believe in the community that you've made for me and that it was made by your body and by your blood. Jesus, you came to this earth. You lived fully God and fully man, perfect, righteous, holy life. But instead of receiving a reward, you received our communal punishment for sin, which is death. You received that on the cross. You died and were buried. And on the third day, you rose from the grave, resurrected and full of life. And that by believing in you, Jesus, we have a promise of eternal life. That even if we close our eyes in this world, we open them into the resurrection and a world fully restored and full of your presence. And that doesn't happen in the future. It begins right now in our lives. Jesus, we believe in you. You gave your life for us. We commit our life to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you can stand up with me, if you are able, all over the room, I'll invite our prayer team to the left and to the right up here. They would love to pray with you. This is a, a longer sermon. I really got going. It's been a long week for me. This is also a sermon about what God has given to us and the people that are around us. And it may begin by you taking a step of faith in just vulnerability. 
And your vulnerability may be an act of service to someone else in this room. As you open up, they get the opportunity to say, me too. I'm not alone. We're walking this together.